Hi guys, how are you doing? Hi, how are you? Great, so happy to have you here. Yeah, nice to talk to you. I have a couple of words for you guys before we actually start the interview. Uh, it's a huge honor for me to have you here, guys. You're one of my favorite bands. Thanks. You're kind of one of the reasons I started the channel. Your guy made me stop looking at the mainstream and start looking at the underground. And that was really interesting for me. Kind of changed my point of view about music. Nice. Cool. I'm glad we're doing this for you. Thanks for being here and thanks for accepting the invitation. Our honor. Am I the first interviewer from South America? or? We've done some interviews in South America, but I don't... I don't know the last time we did one with anybody in Brazil, so this might be the first. Yeah, uh, I want to know what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about my country. The rainforest. The rainforest. I'm worried about the rainforest. Yeah, the, your, your new uh, <laughs> president or whatever his title is being... Uh, Bolsonaro. Yeah. Fascist motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> and then I also think about uh, all the rhythms growing up learning percussion. You know, uh, it's always uh, all drummers who have studied around the world always talk about how Brazil has such intense connection to the rhythms and different cities have their own rhythms and different ceremonies and uh, parties have their own rhythms and all of that. And Sepultura. Yeah, and Sepultura. <laughs> yes, true. Anyway, let's start the interview. First, to start the interview, I'll ask you guys to tell me a little bit about the, the history of the band, like the early years. Just to introduce the interview. Okay. Uh, we, when did we start? 2005? 2005. We started our band in 2005. Uh, I'm going to give you a, a shorter version of the longer story because the longer story is not that interesting. Mm, yeah, but, short story. Yeah, it's okay. Mike and I grew up together and we were in a different band for like, I don't know, six months or something like that. And then when that band was no more, I had just started college, and that's where I met Jarrett in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And uh, and then basically the old band that Mike and I were in transformed into Screaming Females. So that's like a very short version of what yeah. happened, but that's essentially what happened. Yeah, and then we started, uh, I had been in New Brunswick for a few years and knew some people who ran shows and did basement shows and ran punk shows and stuff, so I... Uh, we got our way on to a first show, and a couple people who were running the show were mad because they didn't know that the guy who lived at the house had added an extra band on. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the set, we had convinced them that we were a good band, and then people started asking us to play shows, and now it's uh, 13 or 14 years later, and we're still playing shows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. All right, uh, now we go straight to Babe Thief, the first record. I want to know how you guys recorded that. It sounds a lot to me like DIY and homemade stuff. How you guys first recorded that? That's very accurate. <laughs> we, did, we did record it at Jarrett's home. Um, we did it ourselves. Do, do it yourself, like DIY. Uh, and um, yeah, no one knew what they were doing. We never made a record before. And so I guess that's what it sounds like, huh? Yeah. It was, it was cool. I think that it came out uh, sounding as good as it did because we had a bunch of time. So I clearly remember times when we recorded something and it sounded bad. And then I spent a lot of time trying to make it sound good and couldn't. So then we would just record it again. 
like a couple of weeks later. And that happened a bunch of times. There was times when files got lost and we just had to re-record something. So it was just, we had so much time and access to the equipment. We just kept going. Until... How much time you guys took to, to record it, the whole album? Probably six it was, months. It was like, yeah, whatever the school, like, I mean, it was like a school year basically, right? No, it was like, it was like from early summer till, uh, till like uh, early winter. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, something around six to eight months. Um, but it's funny because that's the longest we ever took to record an album. <laughs> yeah. I thought I about it that way. That. <laughs> well, Mike wasn't even living. Was yeah, Mike wasn't <laughs> living in New Brunswick yet. So he would just come up on the weekends and we'd be like, Marissa and I recorded drums and guitar to this song. You got to put the bass on it. And then we Mike would start playing the bass and be like, the guitar is out of tune. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, okay, you play the bass and we'll get the, we'll redo the guitar later. <laughs> I don't remember. If you asked me how long it took, I would have guessed that it took four days. <laughs> <laughs> For you. <laughs> you guys compose the songs together? Or? Yeah, we do all the songwriting together. It's always been that way. Um, sometimes someone will bring in like an idea. Um, and that'll almost be like sort of done and then we'll all finish it together. Um, but it could be an, it could be any one of us who do that. And that's that's it. I don't that's there's not much else to it. Yeah. And when you sign it with Don Giovanni Records, you guys remaster this album after? Yeah, well the first album we did officially with Don Giovanni was our third album, Power Move. Um, yeah. then after we started that relationship, uh you know, we had been pretty content releasing our own albums, doing some seven inches with friends. Um, but then after we started working with Joe and Don Giovanni, things started to pick up a lot. We started playing 100 shows a year, like for like four or five years straight, recording albums almost every year. During that time period, Joe offered to re-release our first two records, and we were more than happy to relegate that to him since he had such a good infrastructure to do that. Yeah, but you you re-recorded or remastered? A... We did some remastering, um, but most of that was just finding where the files were and pulling them out of some old hard drive. Uh, so <laughs> it was it was more just like no one knew where the masters were. So that's why you get to say it's remastered because you had to master it again. Well, the tapes are <laughs> over there. No, actually, never mind. No, that There's was all two digital, all, yeah. No, not buckets. Not a dat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the what first... Happened? Nothing. <laughs> we were talking about uh, whether the first album, I was saying we don't have tapes for that, and Marissa's saying, but we do for the second album. They're over in a pile over there of the original master tapes somewhere. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. The next question I'm actually going to read because it's too big. It's not that professional, but anyway. All right, having a band something that requires a lot of time and effort, and it may take years for you to be able to make a living of music, and you may never get to this point. How you guys deal with personal life and financial life along the band since 2006 till now, and what have changed so far? There's so many ways to answer the question you asked, but the first thing I think to, that's important to uh, take note of is that There's very few people who get to be professional musicians out of all the people who play music throughout history. So um, we feel really lucky that we get to make any money at all playing music, doing this thing that we love. Um, 
as far as balancing it with life, I mean, this is just part of our life. We like we've grown up doing this. It's going to come up on half of our lifetimes pretty soon if it already hasn't for some of us that we've been doing this. So it's kind of like the only life we know. But I think because we've had it going so long, it's not something where it's like, all right, everybody put everything on hold for a year or two while we see if this is really going to work out or something. We've gotten to this point where if somebody's like, hey, I got an important wedding to go to then we just won't do anything during that time period, you know? It, Usually we all have to go to the weddings together anyway. <laughs> yeah, since we know all this. Stuff. So it doesn't really matter. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's uh, throughout. what's changed throughout time is that, um, I mean, our band has ever so slowly become more and more successful throughout time. So I think last year we probably made the most money we've made in a year. But at the same time, it's it's just such a different environment now. Um, it used to be like when we put out Castle Talk, we probably sold as many copies of Castle Talk in the first year physically as we sold uh, all at once in the first year physically. And you know, Castle Talk was literally primarily us selling them out of a van. It was just people just bought physical materials more, and it's just it was easier. It, now I feel like you have to be a little bit more creative and a little bit uh, more savvy to really make sure that the numbers match up in the end. And that's what I think is forgotten a lot of times when you look at, uh, quote, professional musicians that look like they're small bands, but they really look real professional and they look like they're really doing it. Every time they put out a fancy video, every time they fly out for one show on the opposite coast of where they're from. They're like losing money on all of those things. So although it may make them look professional to the world, as far as financial decisions, it might not be the best business decision. So I think that we sit at a really good um, nexus of being pretty good at this point, business decisions and financial decisions, while also really being willing to invest in our band emotionally and financially as, as an important endeavor. All right. Great answer. <laughs> Anyone want to add anything? Good answer. Solid. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You guys in the United States have something that are not common at all here in Brazil, which is this stuff called basement. And I see there are a lot of basement shows and there are even whole tours that happens in basements and it tends to be something really important for the rock and roll underground musical scene in the United States. Can you explain a little bit more to me how that works? You guys not have the basement? It's not common here at all. And we don't show don't do shows on basements at all. What do you keep in the basements in Brazil? No, the houses don't have basements mostly. Weak. It's true, it's true. Right. You guys should get basements. They're awesome. You can keep all it, like the basement's great because no one has to see it and you can keep all your bullshit down there. Well, that's why it's a good room for shows, I guess, huh? Because you can just leave old beer cans down in the basement and like you don't really have to take out the trash that people accrue down there and stuff. I don't know. I highly recommend it if you can ever get one. Get one. A basement. Yeah. yeah. I guess uh, basement shows happen because it's at least partially underground, so there's a lot of sound absorption. 
So you, mm. you're less likely to get fucked with by the police who, uh, you know, they're police. They fuck with, with people. <laughs> um, they're, you know, it's just, you want to have a show, you want to have cool local bands or touring bands come play. What, what do you have access to other than your own, the home that you're living in? If you're fortunate enough to live in a home. I was talking about business again. You got to keep costs low, you know, the mm. basement, an accessible, low risk space to have a, a bunch of strangers in your house. And I don't, I don't really know what, I guess the sound absorption thing has a lot to do with why the shows are in basements. And it's a big open room. A big you open can, room. Yeah. You can just have a bunch of people over. It's not any risk about, you don't have to talk to the bar and they're not like, Oh, how many people are, going to be buying drinks at the bar or how many, uh, you know, what cut do we get out of the door and all that stuff. You can, all the stuff that normally goes into the risks involved in the show completely go away. And then you can just do a show in your house and you're probably not going to do it in your kitchen, although that happens. So you'll do it in your basement, but it's really less about the basement and more about just finding, <laughs> finding access to a, a space that you can run a show in for almost no overhead and you can have a band that might be the weirdest, worst band in the world play, and no one's going to yell at you afterwards and say, why didn't 100 people come to this show? And that's really where, uh, like, you know, new, exciting ideas spring from, because most of the time people aren't shelling out a bunch of money on a Tuesday night to go see something they've never heard of. But if you do it in your house and you get you know, 25 people there who each put in five or $10, you can have the, the touring band leave with 200 bucks and that's enough to get them to their next show. So mm. whether it be a basement or a cafe that they'll let you run a show in for free or any of the, or an abandoned house on the side of the road <laughs> or any of the million kinds of spots we've played, it's just important to keep new and exciting stuff happening. But if the basement gets on fire, everybody dies, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If the basement gets fire, everybody dies. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's a huge problem. <laughs> there was a tragedy a few years ago where a DIY space did catch on fire and a bunch of people died, and it was really, really terrible. But uh, it's pretty remarkable that there aren't more accidents considering how precarious it is. And that's really just because the arts aren't a priority in our society. So, uh, you know, they're... We don't have access to a lot of good, uh, safe spaces where people can just show up and you don't have to pay a bunch of money to be there. So, it's, you know, people end up living in these spaces just so they can promote arts and promote their scene and whatever. And it's pretty tragic that somebody ended up, people ended up dying because the space was not up to uh, safety. Yeah, but at the same time, it's amazing that you guys have this space to play, and we don't have here. And I believe it's one of the facts that the underground scene don't grows that much, and that that's pretty fucked up. Yeah. Anyway, I'm gonna go to the next subjects, which I don't remember which one is. Oh, sure. I got a, a question to Marisa right now. Uh, I s I saw a picture of you with Kathleen Hanna showing her big finger. What's the story behind that pic? Uh, we went on tour with the, her. They put out... Oh, I don't know what year that was. Uh, so they put out a new record, and we did like two weeks with them or something like that. Um, 
that's the whole story. So we were hanging out every day at uh, our shows, and then that picture is from our last show together in uh, New Jersey. All right. Is she a cool person? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, she's always been very nice to me. With that being said, I we didn't really talk that much because most of our days were spent in separate cars going to the same show. Mm -hmm. So it's not like we were spending a ton of time together, but in the moments where I did speak to her, she was super nice. I know Lance Banks, which is the husband of Karen Tucker, produced a documentary for Screaming Females and also a video clip. Have you ever met the girls yep. from Slurkini? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've met Corin a bunch of times. We played with the Corin Tucker band oh. a really long ago. Um, and uh, every time I've seen Slater Kinney since I've become friends with Lance, I usually say hi to her too. Um, but that's, that's about the extent of it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sorry. Oh. So boring. And also, L7 has recently signed with Don Giovanni Records, if I'm not mistaken. Have you guys ever met them? or? No, I've never met anyone from L7, but I did see them right before they put out that single, and it was a great show. Um, but I've never, yeah, I don't think I've ever met anyone from that band. All right. Uh, now the last question for you guys. It's about the, 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 the last record you guys put out. Uh, the last album sounds for me like a mix of ways you guys can sound. There are more mainstream songs like I'll Make a Sorry and My Body. At the same time, you got songs like Fantasylands that sounds totally like Rose Mountain. And also songs with more improvisations and effects like Chamber for Sleep and Step Aside. Uh, Compared with the other albums that ha like have a pattern between the musics, uh, this one is just a mix of everything. How did you guys wrote the songs? Uh, I think we started writing, and Marissa always gets really nervous that she's never going to be able to write a good song again when we start writing. Marissa started coming with a bunch of ideas and was really being prolific and rapid fire with all these ideas. So... That's what started to happen before all at once. And they were just, they were like really different songs. Some of them were like small, like uh, these little tiny, uh, small, sonically small ideas. And then other ones were just like really big rock songs. And uh, instead of trying to, you know, kind of find a middle ground between them all, we're like, we let things kind of set more apart from each other. Uh, that was all I had to ask to you guys. Do you want to say anything? Thank you for calling us all the way from Brazil. Yeah. And I want you guys to send the last message for people that will be watching this lovely video. Um, uh, if you run shows in Brazil, um, email us. We want to come. <laughs> <laughs> that was nice. <laughs> cool. Thanks for calling me. Thank you very much. Bye. Yeah, thank you. Bye -bye. Thank you so much for your kind words, too. Thank you.